Father, I have several things on my mind to pray for this morning. First of all, the phrase that Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he said, hallowed be thy name. And I think about all the ways your name was drugged through the mud in the manure of this world. I think about the times your name was used in vain, used as a cuss word, or just used as a filler, an expression, an exclamation, thoughtless, mindless, blasphemous in some cases. And Lord, I'm sorry for that. And I'm sorry that we live in a generation that is so unclean. And as Isaiah said, not only are we unclean, but we come from a generation of unclean lips. Lord, today might it be different from east to west, north to south, here in our hearts, all around the world. May your name be hallowed today. And we pray as we think about families today, that maybe they come to church and they look good on the outside and they're very careful about the way they speak, the way they behave. But there's such a rift, such ungodliness, such a lack of love, so much misunderstanding and retaliation and the very opposite of what we studied in Sunday school this morning. Oh, Father, you healed people physically in the New Testament through the Lord Jesus. You healed us spiritually through the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now would you heal us in our relations and help us, Lord, to love in our homes as we ought to. May it not just be an act. Help our church that we might love each other and it wouldn't just be words. Help us, Lord, as we go out into a lost and dying world. May we show love that lost people know nothing about. May we not be just a cheap imitation of the real thing, but may the genuineness of the love of God flow through us. Father, I pray for our sick society and our sick nation today. Oh, Father, you're the only hope that we have. Please heal us. Please bring salvation to our president and his family and advisors, our vice president, her family and advisors. Please bring salvation and wisdom to members of the Senate, members of the House of Representatives. Please, Lord, for governors and members of our state legislature, bring them to Christ and give them the wisdom that is taught by the Word of God. Do the same for our mayor and our city council. And, oh, Lord, for school boards. What a battle is being fought today for the souls of our children. And we pray, Father, that you would put righteous people on our school boards who are bold and who will stand up for the truth. And bless our teachers that try to live a Christian life and teach things from a Christian perspective. And Father, we pray that you would uphold them. And all oh, for our children, how we pray for them. Please insulate them from the lies of this world and remind them and may the truth that you remind them of bear fruit in their lives. Father, for judges, as our Supreme Court is meeting and thinking about these vaccine mandates and many other things like that, oh, Lord, give them wisdom. And above that, give them salvation. And, Lord, would you heal our land and let us be instruments, agents of your grace as you do so. May people who are lost come to know Christ. And, Father, we pray that in our own church, sick people might be healed. We pray that relationships might be mended. 
And we pray, Father, that you would provide for every need that we have. And we'll give you praise and glory now before it's even answered. And we'll certainly do it after you answer. And we thank you, Lord, for your love for us because that's the only reason we can love you. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for your presence always with us, not just here in this place, but everywhere we go. And thank you, Lord, for the hope of heaven that we have. May we share that with other people. Make us to be the people of God from the heart. And we pray this for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me today to Exodus, let's go to the 32nd chapter. We've already seen the debacle with Aaron and the golden calf and Moses being told by God what the people were doing. And so uh, now they are back down and Moses is gotten upset with them, as you can imagine. And now we're going to talk about the aftermath. He asked a question, and uh, this question is the title of a hymn you may know. Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? A good question to ask. Jesus made it real clear. If you are not for me, you are, what did he say? Against me. No neutral ground whatsoever in these situations. So we're going to read about this. And as you read through it, you're probably going to do like um, I think about everybody does, is to say, wow, this is a pretty severe thing. And it's one of the things that Bible critics uh, bring up and they kind of throw in our face. But we're going to look at it from a different perspective. And instead of looking at it and going, wow, how great was the judgment on these people, we're going to think about this. How great was their sin? And if we could see it more from that perspective, we tend to look and say, how could God be so severe? Well, better question is, how could we be so apt to sin, especially like the children of Israel here in what is called, on about four different occasions, a great sin? And so uh, we're looking at Exodus 32 and we'll begin reading in verse 25. We'll read through the story here. Now, when Moses saw that the people were, and uh, you may have a version that says they were naked. It's not a bad translation of the word. But it can also be translated uh, unrestrained or let loose. In other words, morally and in their action, they had nothing holding them back. And there is a sexual component to what was going on here. So you can imagine what Moses and Aaron saw when they came down from the mountain and saw all of this. When he saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood on the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side... Come to me. And all the sons of Levi, and that kind of makes sense. They were going to be the future priests when they were consecrated for that. You would expect them to be on the Lord's side. But don't miss this either. Moses was of the tribe of Levi. These are his extended family members that are coming and standing with him. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. So what's he going to tell them to do? Here it is, verse 27. 
And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, meaning the whole camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Boy, can you imagine gulp? That's quite a commission, isn't it? But if you're on the Lord's side, it's going to be costly, and it demands obedience, and it demands total obedience, doesn't it? So verse 28, what are they going to do? So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now, when you stop there and you think about what that means, they've just gone through this golden calf debacle, and uh, all of this has happened. Now there's a call to come and stand and be on the Lord's side, and only one tribe apparently shows up for this. And out of all of these people, 3,000 are killed. Now, 3,000 is a... Well, out of... Uh, probably 600,000 men, not counting women and children. There's well over a million, maybe up to 2 million people. So 3,000 is uh, not as bad as it could be, but it's enough. And you can imagine the weeping. You can imagine the bodies that are getting ready for burial. You can imagine everything that is going on here, not necessarily a happy time. And... Uh, you think about all of that that's going on and what is going to be the response. Well, verse 29, Then Moses says, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing. And notice the next two words, this day. This day of sin, this day of judgment, this day of sorrow, this day of grieving, is a day that you are to consecrate yourselves to the Lord. You know, we have an idea that if you're sick, or if you're grieving, or if things are going sour in your life, that's the time to get away from the Lord, when that's really the time to run to Him. That's the time to stay away from church, instead of running to the church. Consecrate yourselves to the Lord, that He may bestow on you a blessing this day, the day of darkness, the day of sadness, the day of judgment, the day of sin, the day of mourning. Why? For every man has opposed his son and his brother. They stood against even their own family on this issue. And by the way, if you stand for Christ, it may cost you your family, right? Verse 30, it says, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if you will not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. 
Now therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. And behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. In other words, there's still going to be consequences. Forgiven, yeah. Consequences, absolutely, right? Verse 35. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Well, Aaron is going to be reminded of this for the rest of his life, isn't he? Because Aaron should have stood up for the Lord and been on the Lord's side in the day of temptation. How different it would have been if Aaron had said, when they said, make us gods that we can follow, if Aaron had said, you'll have to kill me before I'll do anything like that. You think that might have had an impact? I don't know, but I would think so. And yet Aaron is the one who went along with them. And then remember last week he said to Moses, I don't know what happened. We just took all the gold and threw it in the fire and this thing came out. Wow, what are we supposed to do? And uh, now we find that Aaron is going to be reminded of this and he's going to have to live with this. And it is recorded and brought up again in the very word of God that lasts for eternity. So, looking at this passage of Scripture, who is on the Lord's side, see that like at any point of life, sin kind of becomes the issue of whether we walk with the Lord or not. Whether we are on the Lord's side or not. And so these people that had been redeemed by Him, called out by Him, who had walked across the Red Sea on dry land, The same people for whom God destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. All of these kind of things, it didn't take them very long before they made an idol, violated the commandments that God had given them and uh, in such a way that it's a great sin to them. And so the question has to be asked, who is on the Lord's side? If you are, Moses said, then come stand with me. And uh, there were plenty of people who apparently... Uh, for whatever reason, did not stand with them. And so the Levites are sent out and they are going to execute capital punishment on those people who don't stand with the Lord. Sound harsh? Sound severe? What in the world is going on in all of this? Well, let's think about some things here. That first of all, first of all, when we think about sin, sin must be confronted. Sin must be confronted. Moses says, you have sinned a great sin. He is the one who ground up the idol. He's the one that put it in their drinking water and they had to drink the dust of that gold. And as Moses does all of this and his anger burns hot and he is so distraught by all of this to sin, and then he says, okay, here's the dividing line. What are you? Who are you? Where are you going to line up? And, you know, Joshua had to do this later on with Israel, a generation or so later, when he said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, that's not unlike this. Make up your minds. You did all of this. You made the golden calf. You were involved in a sexual orgy. You were doing all of these kind of things and bowing down and sacrificing to the idol. Now, make up your mind. Who are you going to be? 
And that's the call that preachers have made and the Word of God makes throughout history and throughout generations. It is time for us to figure out whose side we're on. Because there are a lot of people that come to church and they sing the wonderful songs like we have sung, and they say amen, and they act as though they agree with the Word of God, but then when you see them outside of the church, you'd have to question, whose side are you on really? Who is it that you really support? What is it that you're really enthusiastic about? Now, we can rant and rave and rail against all the things we don't like in the world, politically, economically, socially, whatever. And yet, at the same time, when we act as though we are in approval of those kind of things, then it's got to be confusing. No wonder our children that grow up in church are abandoning the church in high, high numbers. No wonder that there are so many people who we witness to them and our witness seems to fall on deaf ears because they're not sure where we really stand and whose side we're really on. And then when I think about the words that Jesus said, if you're not for me, then you are against me. There really is no neutral ground. Who are you serving? Because you've got to serve and you are serving somebody. And if it's not the Lord, then of course it is the devil and his kingdom and everything that he did so does so Moses has a confrontation here who is on the Lord's side good question good question good question for us to think about as we think about our society we are to be salt and light and to confront this wicked culture with their sin it's a good question for the church are we just a gathering of people who like each other and kind of have some things we believe in common? Or are we the army of the Lord, fully devoted and committed to Him? It's a good question to ask the family. What kind of a family are we? Are we committed to sports and not Christ? Are we committed to making money and not Christ? I mean, who are we really? What is going on in our homes is it all about happiness? Is it all about sexual fulfillment? Is it all about that? Or is it about holiness? And is it about honoring our vows? Is it about treating each other right and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and wives being submissive to their husbands as to the Lord and children obeying their parents in the Lord? What is it really all about? And what would an alien from another planet, what would he surmise about your life and your interaction in the culture? Would they come to the conclusion that you serve a different God, that you have a different king, that you have a different law, that you have a different standard? What would they say about you? And then the question that only you can answer is this. What about in your own heart? Are you on the Lord's side or are you just putting on an act, putting on a show? Are you saying the right things and doing the right things, but in your heart, you're not submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ? In your heart, you're the king. In your heart, you're the sovereign. In your heart, you're the one who determines good and bad and right or wrong. Or are you submissive to Jesus and his king Jesus seated on the throne of your heart. Sin must be challenged because if we leave it alone, it's only going to grow and it is only going to get worse. And so 
when we think about what Moses did, he was taking a stand as we ought to take a stand, and he was calling on the people to take a stand as we're calling upon you and every other believer to take a stand. This is not something that it's good enough only for the politicians to take a stand. We must take a stand. It's not enough just for the preachers to take a stand. We must take a stand. This is something that we're all called to do. And we've got to look at our own life and challenge ourselves about our life and about the sin that we tolerate in our life. It cannot be tolerated. We've got to see that the people here were out of control. Some of you are out of control. You just don't know it yet. Sometimes you can have a car that is speeding down a mountain out of control with no brakes and the steering isn't working and the car doesn't seem to be all that bad as long as the downhill slope is not terribly steep and as long as there are not curves. It's when the road gets really steep that you see things happen. It's when the road begins to curve that you see that it's out of control. And it might be by the grace of God, you're doing okay, you might say. But God is saying to you this morning, you are out of control morally, ethically, in your actions, in your attitudes. You're out of control. And I've got you on a straightaway right now where you don't see it, but you're going to be in trouble when the road begins to curve. And some of you may be closer to that than you actually think. And so when you think about the people here and what Moses is saying, this commitment to overcome sin, to honor God, this is a decision they have to make. It is a separation from what they have been doing before, and it requires action. This is not going to be passive at all. The time for being passive and laissez-faire is over. This is the time for commitment to the Lord. Who is on the Lord's side is the question of the hour and the question for our times. Someone said that in our modern culture, we regard the absence of restraint as heaven on earth. Just let us do what we want to do. Love who we want to love. Act any way we want to act, right? You know what that gets you? Do you remember the summer of 2020? When there was anarchy and rioting and looting and burning down. That's what you get when there's no restraint. I continue on this quote. But as the Bible and common sense tell us that this kind of moral, spiritual, and social anarchy brings nothing but destruction. And can I warn you that for those of you as the people of God, like this group in Israel was the people of God, that when you get unrestrained and you're not passionate about the Lord and living for His glory and you're not standing up for Him, you are going to drift. And as you drift, you're going to get out of control. And as you get out of control, then there is a day of reckoning and a crash is coming your way. So I'm warning you today, get things right with God. Who is on the Lord's side? Sin must be challenged. And secondly, sin must be dealt with, notice, severely. Sin is not anything to play with. You don't pet the rattlesnake. You don't pet and make friends with the crocodile. 
The wildebeest doesn't jump in the river with the crocodiles and say, hey, all you crocodiles, let's swim together. Let's have fun together. Boy, we'll just, we can get along. You know what's going to happen. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, he said, I know the scriptures teach that one day the lion will lie down with the lamb. He goes, even then I'd rather be the lion. It's kind of funny when you think about it. But when we think about things and we think about life and we think about sin, we are to approach it from a position of strength, number one, because we're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Ephesians 6. And we're to approach it from the standpoint that it is an enemy. The rattlesnake, you don't pet the rattlesnake and make friends with it. You don't pet the crocodile and make friends with it because you understand that they are out to destroy you. And the thief, Jesus told us, not me, Jesus, comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And some of you have experienced that in greater ways than others have. There's no way to get around this. There's no way to make it work or to make it right other than to deal with sin and to deal with it in a severe way. Now, wasn't it our Lord who said, if your right eye offends you, do what? Pluck it out. Severe. Now, he wasn't speaking literally there. He was saying to us that when you deal with sin, don't coddle it. Don't make place for it. Don't play around with it. Don't tolerate it. Because anytime you and sin have a peaceful relationship, that means sin is getting ready to win. That means that it's just a matter of time until the crocodile takes you down under the water. It's just a matter of time before the snake bites. You cannot tolerate or have a peaceful relationship with sin. We're to come across it in a warlike manner. And so Moses is doing something very, very severe with these people. Put on your sword and then go out and you are to use that sword against anybody, even if they are close relatives to you. Now again, we're shocked by that. Boy, how in the world? But we're not shocked by our sins. Something's out of balance and something's wrong when we look at an action and we can weigh out and judge God and find him to be too severe, too violent, too unloving and not see the sin of the people as being infinitely worse than anything else because God initially had told Moses, I'll destroy all these people and raise someone up to you. And you know what? That's what they deserved. In this case, 3,000 died. Is it sad that 3,000 died? You bet it is. But understand, it's grace. It's grace that not all million or two million Israelis died. What was God doing? And why didn't God kill everybody? Why didn't everyone die? Why did, there, uh, why did 3,000 have to die? And maybe we could even ask, why did he only have 3,000 die? Well, I don't know because we're not really told, but we can guess. Maybe the 3,000 were the ringleaders. Maybe they were the ones that put the pressure on Aaron. Maybe they were the ones that put the pressure on the people to worship the golden calf. I don't know. Could be. And maybe they were the unrepentant ones. Maybe they were the ones that were resentful toward God, 
resentful toward Moses because they couldn't do what they wanted to do. After all, we were just having a little fun. Maybe they were the ones that were stiff-necked. Maybe they were the ones that were prideful and unrepentant. But we know this one thing which for sure. They were not just innocent bystanders. They were those who were involved in all of this. And the Bible says very clearly, Old and New Testament, the soul that sins shall die. In the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty for sin. Adam and Eve were told, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. And so we think maybe the others were spared. You know, what about all the other ones that didn't die by the sword? And uh, maybe it's because they just followed, but they didn't instigate. Maybe they were just going with the crowd. But now they're going to suffer too. Maybe they weren't killed, but probably someone they loved was killed through all of this. The whole nation is going to be hurting with all of this. And understand that the answer to this question, why didn't they all die? It's only one thing we can say is grace. Grace is the short-term answer. But understand this, the long-term answer is they did all die. It was just a matter of when. And that's why you're going to die. And that's why I am going to die. That's why everybody on the earth is going to die. Because of the wages of sin. It's just a matter of time. Some people take cocaine, and the very first time they take it, they die. Others go for decades, and they're able to actually kick the habit. And we say, well, they did far worse. Look at all the cocaine they ingested. They may have even bought and sold it to pay for their habit. How come they got away with it? They didn't. They're going to be laid in a coffin and buried in a grave one day too. And that's the answer to all of this. All of them died. David understood this when in Psalm 51 he said, Deliver me from blood guilt. He knew he was guilty to the point of even death. And in fact, he says in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Then he says something interesting, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, the reason we confess our sin is to say this, God, I'm wrong, you're right, and you are justified in whatever you bring into my life as a consequence of sin. So a holy, just God said, you must die, and he gave 3,000 people there the death penalty, but then all those others were spared. How does God get glory out of that? Because they could say, you are gracious, and you are merciful. And any way God spoke and whatever he did, he would be seen as just. In Joshua 7, 19, after Achan sinned at the battle of Jericho, now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Why? Because Confession and dealing with sin and dealing with it severely brings glory to God. Who is on the Lord's side? Even in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, there's a certain man named Ananias, 
and Sapphira, his wife, they sell land and they come with a pretense. We're giving it all to the Lord. Oh, how righteous and holy and sacrificial are we. And it was a lie. And that day they both died and were buried. God deals with sin as he chooses. And he doesn't always do it immediately. But sometimes he does. And that was a very frightening thing. And the Bible goes on to say that none the rest dared join them. Among the lost world out there would say, don't join up with them. One false move and you're dead. Well, God is justified in doing that because that's exactly what he warns us with and threatens us with. Even in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, listen to this, many are weak and sick among you and many asleep, meaning they've died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit in a sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. Look at that last statement. There is sin leading to death. You don't know where that is. I don't know where that is. And it may be different for me than it is for you or you than it is for somebody seated around you. We can't put it on a chart. There's no algorithm for it. It is up to the justice and the holiness of God. And so we play around with sin in peril of our lives. When I was a kid, nearly everybody smoked everywhere you went. It was on movies, it was on TV, it was at the shopping center. Even when you went to church, you saw the row of men in the back of the church standing out there and offering burnt offerings to the Lord, I guess, right? Remember that? Surgeon General comes out and says that it's harmful to your health. They put it on the cigarette packs, but it takes a long time before smoking falls out of favor. Now you see somebody smoking. I mean, isn't it nice to go into a restaurant and not have to ask for a non-smoking section? Isn't it nice that when you uh, go into a public place, it's not filled with smoke? How about on an airplane? Man, it's nice not to have to put up with that. It's amazing. But you know what? Every smoker I've ever known, they've always said something like this. Well, I know I probably shouldn't, but you know, my great-grandma, she smoked until she was 115, and it didn't hurt her. And as a pastor, I have been by the bedside of a lot of people who have died from various cancers. And a lot, a high percentage of those people were ex-smokers. You know why? Because we're dumb enough to think that if it doesn't have an immediate effect, it's not going to have any effect. Now, we'll get off of the smoking thing and just say this. That's the way we are when we indulge in sin. 
And the Bible says there's a sin unto death. There comes a point where God says, enough. I promise to make you like Christ in Romans 8, 29. And if you won't cooperate with me on earth, I'll just do it instantly and take you on to heaven. There is a sin that leads to death, the Bible says. We've got to understand how serious it is. And number three, we've got to understand that the Lord is our only hope. It's not just moral reform. It's not just doing better or acting better. It actually has to be done by the Lord. Moses gets through with all of this, and he said, I'm going to go see the Lord, and I'm going to talk to him about atonement for you. Well, Moses couldn't make atonement. The people couldn't make atonement. In fact, when you think about it, that um, these people were stubbornly persisting in sin and they expected God's blessing to still be on them. And it just doesn't work that way. Not for me, not for you, and not for ancient Israel. You've got to obey the Lord. You've got to walk with the Lord. You've got to be faithful to Him. You can't walk along in sin and expect blessing. That's called foolishness. And the Levites proved their loyalty regardless of the cost. And that really is what the point is. Jesus tells us that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. And there's very little self-denial going on in this culture. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 is a verse that references that. If you do not do that, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Now, we've got to understand something here, that grinding up the golden calf, that um, confronting Aaron, killing 3,000 people, and even the Levites saying, we'll be loyal to God, cannot fix this situation. Moses has to do this one thing, so now I will go up to the Lord, and that's the only place to go for sinners like us. Atonement only comes to those who see their sin and its consequence, and they see the Lord as their only hope. Which brings us to number four, we get a glimpse of the gospel. Did you notice in there that Moses, when he's before the Lord, he says, Oh Lord, forgive this people, and if you won't, blot my name out of your book. For New Testament Christians, that's scary. Because we assume that the book he's talking about is the book in Revelation called the Lamb's Book of Life. And so some people would say, see, right there, you can lose your salvation. Your name has been blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Well... The Lamb's Book of Life doesn't have an eraser, and your name is in there from before the foundation of the world. What could Moses possibly be talking about in this situation when he says, blot me out of the book? He doesn't call it the Lamb's Book of Life, but he does call it the book. I think the answer is in Psalm 69, 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. In other words, God's got more than one book. In fact, in Revelation 20, it says that when the lost are judged, books, plural, are open. It's not just the Lamb's book of life. 
And apparently, according to the psalmist, God has a book with the names of every person on earth that is living in it. And when he blots your name out of the book, it means you die. So with that as our understanding, Moses was saying, forgive these people, and if you won't, let me die with them. That's how much he loved them. That's how much he identified with them. But you know, there was somebody as great as that is, there was somebody even greater. The second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, he said concerning you, Take their sin and put it on me. Take their judgment and put it on me. And blot my name out of the book of the living for their sakes. So Moses was standing saying, Lord, if you're going to punish them, punish me. Jesus said, if you're going to punish them, don't do it. Punish me. I'll die in their place. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 9... Verses 1 through 5. I am so burdened for my kinsmen according to the flesh, Israel, that I wish that I could be accursed so that they could be saved. Sounds a lot like Moses, doesn't it? And when you think about what Jesus said, who is the ultimate here for us, we have to go to 1 Peter chapter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just... For the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Moses here is a picture, a glimpse of the gospel of an intercessor, of a mediator, loving his people so much, identifying with them in death, saying, if you are going to kill them, if you're not going to forgive them, then wipe me out. Two, I will die with them. And that points us to a Savior who says, punish me instead of them. And he paid, as we sang earlier, the full price for our sin. Full atonement can it be? Yes, through the Lord Jesus Christ. A glimpse of the gospel through Moses. But then lastly, there is also a strong warning here. The Bible tells us that the Lord says to Moses, go lead the people to the place that I'm going to show you. So the Lord was still going to be with them. They were still going to be his people. But he said that, be ready, because there's a plague coming. There are still going to be consequences to the sin. And you and I may sin, and our sin is forgiven by Christ. But many times, consequences remain. Consequences linger. They may linger in your body. They may linger in relationships. They may linger in your mind. But the consequences linger on. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And so the consequences of sin stay on. They can be different for different people. Some more severe than others. We all know that. But nonetheless, they do remain. You say, well, why would God do that? 
Well, first of all, according to Hebrews 12, it's a sign that he loves you because he's your father. He's not going to let you continue in sin. It's also a sign of salvation. If you don't receive chastisement, then you don't belong to him. And it also is a reminder. God sometimes lets us have the scars. Whenever I'm getting ready in the morning and I don't have a shirt on, I can feel perfectly fine. But right down the center of my chest, there is a reminder that about eight weeks ago, I was on an operating table. And that'll be there, I assume, for the rest of my life. A reminder of what I've been through, a reminder that something was wrong with my heart that had to be fixed. And in your sin, there are scars that you carry with you. It's forgiven, it's been dealt with, but the scar is there to remind you of where God found you, to remind you of what he had to do for you by his grace. A reminder that the penalty could have been far worse except that Christ took that for you on the cross of Calvary because he's a gracious, merciful, and loving God. And it's a reminder you don't ever want to go through this again. See, I can tell you one thing. At the point I'm at right now, I don't want to do this again. I would never sign up for it. I'm not going down to my surgeon and saying, uh, yes, uh, my name is Greg Keenan. Uh, what can we do for you? Having problems? Nope. I just wanted to do the surgery again. We got a bill the other day. You ready for this? $330,000 for this. Yeah, I want to do that again. Yeah, I want to do it again. When you think about all of that kind of stuff, you go, yeah, that would be just really, really, really dumb. I would agree. I would agree. But what about the scars in your life that are there to remind you of what you have been through, what God has brought you from, and what the consequences have been, and yet you indulge again and again and again? I'm going to tell you, that's more than just dumb. That is insane, isn't it? Isn't it? And yet we do it. And we have a God who has given us every opportunity to be an overcomer. He's put his spirit within us. He's made us more than conquerors. He's given us his armor. He's given us his power. He's given us the name of Jesus that is a name above all other names. He's given us his word. He's given us examples in the lives of other people. And yet sometimes we follow along like the blind, leading the blind, just a herd heading on to destruction and not realizing what all God has done for us. And you know what? Just like the people of Israel who forgot that God brought them out of Egypt, who had forgotten that God spared them from the 10th plague, who had forgotten that God took them across the Red Sea on dry land, who had forgotten what God had provided for them. But before you look down your nose at them, physician, heal thyself. Because we're not any different. And we wonder where the blessing and the power of the Lord is. We know the grace is there. But where is the blessing and where is the fruit? Time to do some examination. Who is on the Lord's side?
Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes? Lord, I know that there are people here today and there are people who are watching this by live stream. They can do all the pretense they want and all the self-reformation that they want, but they've never been born again and they're not on the Lord's side. In fact, they're alienated from you. They're hostile toward you and they don't even know it. Oh Lord, I pray for their salvation. And then I pray for us as the people of God, how easily we stray, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. May we be like the Levites who line up with Moses and say, we are on the Lord's side no matter what it might cost us, no matter what we're commanded to do. We are here, we are faithful, we are ready, we are available because we know that you are the only true and living God and your ways are just and righteous. And I pray, Lord, you would call us to that commitment in every area of our life. And thank you, Lord, for your wonderful promises in your word, for your great love toward us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and give you glory and honor. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for your time. And I pray that the Lord blesses you and pray that somebody that you texted this morning watch this and that somebody gets saved as a result of listening to this message, watching it, and getting their life right with God if they're already saved. Because if there was ever a time for us to stand up and be counted, the time is now. The time is now. Who is on the Lord's side?